God's Word in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25, says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Lord, would you use these words to help us to see you in a greater light, to help us to want to live out your character to those around us, specifically husbands to their wives. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, in 2018, sociologist Michael Kimmel did a social experiment at West Point University. He asked the cadets that if in a eulogy they heard someone say, he was a good man, what would that mean? He says they had no trouble answering. Honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, doing the right thing, standing up for the little guy, being a provider, being a protector. That was being a good man. When he asked where they got this, they said, it's everywhere. It's our culture. It's the Judeo-Christian heritage. It's the air we breathe. However, Kimmel then followed up with another set of questions that began with, what does it mean if I tell you, man, you really messed up, or maybe insert a stronger word, be a real man? This time the cadets replied, well, that's completely different. To be a real man means to be tough, strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up, play through pain, be competitive, get rich. It wasn't just West Point, though. Kimmel repeated this experiment over and over in various contexts in various countries in the West, and he kept getting this sharp contrast between the good man and the real man. So what about you? Is there a difference between a good man and a real man? If so, which one do you want to be or want the men in your life to be? This morning we again come to God's instructions to us regarding marriage. However, we must be ready for the curveballs our culture will throw us with dismissive labels. If you've read C.S. Lewis's insightful book, The Screwtape Letters, you'll remember that early on he gives us instruction. Let me remind you, that book is uh, the premise of a senior demon instructing a younger demon on how to lead someone from God. And in it, the senior demon writes this. It sounds as if you suppose that the argument was the main way to keep him out of the enemies, in this case, God's clutches. That might have been so if we've lived a few centuries earlier. At that time, the humans still knew pretty well when a thing was proved and it was not. And if it was proved, they really believed it. They still connected, thinking with doing, and prepared to alter their way of life as a result of a chain of reasoning. But we, the demon argues, have largely altered that. 
Your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about altogether in his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. And I bring that up because the jargon used against what I'm about to say, what God's word said is, well, that's just patriarchy. And consider, for example, this definition from a leading news organization in our country about what patriarchy is. Patriarchy is, they say, organized around an obsession with control and involves as one of its key aspects the oppression of women. They later write, it also comes with expectations that a manly man is heterosexual, always strong, shows little emotion, is the provider, not the caregiver, dominates over others, must always be in control. In other words, we're told, this interpretation is the real man. Yet we always have to say, well, that might be what a term is, that might be what our culture says, but what does God's word say? How does it say that a husband should live in relation to his wife? And this morning we see that God's design is that husbands reflect the real and the good God-man, Jesus Christ, in their relationship to their wife. This passage really has two main sections. First three verses, 25 through 27. Husbands are called to love their wife like Christ. And then in the next three verses, they're to love their wife like themselves. So that'll be the two sections. But first, love your wife like Christ. Christ, verses 25 through 27. And when we looked at God's calling for a wife, we discussed authority in general. And let me remind you of the five things we said. First, we said God gave various authorities in our life for our good. You know, a good teacher, a good coach, a principal, boss, or governmental leader can greatly bless people. Yes, authorities often use and abuse their authority for selfish ends, but God gave authority to bless us. Second, the authority figure should be respected for their role, not due to their character demanding it. The leader may not lead as they should, and maybe at the right time they should be confronted on that. However, God calls us to respect our authorities in obedience to him, not because they show themselves worthy in their use of that authority. Third, just because someone is under authority, that does not mean they are inferior, or just because someone is the authority, that doesn't mean they're superior. Jesus put himself under the authority of Joseph and Mary, not because he was inferior to them, but because at that time in his earthly life, he was their child, so he submitted to their authority while not making himself inferior. Fourth, while our culture finds the commands here to the wife, the children, the workers to be shocking, to the Ephesians, to their culture, the shocking statements were the ones to the husbands, to the parents, to the masters. They didn't see that those in authority had obligations, and yet God's word is radical, commanding even those in authority to use their authority in a right way. And fifth, in review, we need to realize that this whole section really all started back in chapter 5, verse 18. There it said, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then it laid out several ways we are filled with the Spirit. And the last one, verse 21, 
submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And last week we saw the wife's unique submission to her husband was to respect her husband. And today we see the husband's unique submission is to love his wife. And so there we come to verse 25. A husband is called to love his wife. Now if you're reading this for the first time and you're not sympathetic to the Bible, you might find this rather odd because all this submission and authority isn't going to say, husbands, rule your wives. Well, no. You would only think that if you haven't caught the Bible base, Jesus-like authority that says, I have not come to be served, but to serve. The command is about love. That's how you lead. Yes, the curse of sin from Genesis 3 causes a leadership battle between the spouses. Yet this is fixed not by fighting harder to get control, but by giving oneself up for the other. And this Jesus-like love is seen in three aspects. We'll see that it is sacrificial, that it's unconditional, and it's sanctifying. So sacrificial, unconditional, sanctifying. So first, a husband's love should reflect Christ's sacrificial love. That's a clear implication of verse 25 that says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And well, how did he do that? By giving himself up for her. You know, Jesus' love for the church is not just an emotional feeling. Rather, it was giving his own life by dying on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. It says something similar at the beginning of this chapter. Chapter 5, verse 2 of Ephesians. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In other words, God made his love clear by Jesus giving his life for us. It's laying down one's own desires for the good of the other. And this may mean a husband will physically give his life to protect and defend his wife. Many of you may remember year or so when I was here, a young man came. He was in the Air Force. His name was Ryan Robinson, and I'd known his family growing up. And his dad, Clay Robinson, was awoken one night in their house as he heard someone downstairs. He went downstairs to investigate, and as he investigated, he found a robber. And they ended up both shooting at each other. And he tragically, in the defense of his family, was shot and killed. Though tragic, he fulfilled the ultimate calling God gives husbands in this scenario, in this regard. In other words, the protection of the family shouldn't be a 50-50 balance. Husbands, don't be equal and lean over and go, Hey, sweetie, last time I went and took the robber on, it's your turn. This should be a 100%, 0%. That you are the one who physically lays down your life for your bride. God calls the husband to willingly sacrifice life and limb. Now, while most of us will thankfully never face such a situation, there are many other ways we can sacrifice for and protect our wife. I was greatly convicted when I read these words by Richard Phillips. He writes, I used to think that if a man came into my house to attack my wife, I would certainly stand up to him. But then I came to realize that the man who enters my house and assaults my wife every day is me. 
Through my anger, my harsh words, my complaints, and my indifference, I came to realize that the man I need to kill in order to protect my wife is myself as a sinner. You know, Phillips is just illustrating Proverbs 12, 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So husbands, are you protecting your wife from the ugly thoughts in your own hearts? Or have you with precision cut her down for her cooking, her actions, her words, her looks? Are you quicker to compliment or point out the way she just messed up? You know, may we protect our wives, yes, from the external dangers, but also from ourselves, and as we'll see later, nourish and cherish them rather than tear them down. And we could apply this to a myriad of daily scenarios in which two people live. And as two people live, they're going to have to work things out. Now, as you get married, as you learn to work things out, sometimes it's helpful to set up guidelines and parameters and just division of labor. I'm going to do this and you're going to do that. But you can never make up enough parameters to take care of every issue in life. No amount of rules and structure will work out every scenario. So who will step up to do the cleaning when you're both tired? Who will swallow the hard pill of pride and be the first to confess their short temper? Who will yield to the other's desires for decorations or dining options or the myriad of choices that a couple must face? I think Tim Challies hits it on the head by writing, a husband's leadership is not first a matter of breaking ties or solving impasses, but a matter of being first to love, the first to serve, the first to repent, the first to forgive. And so the husband's love, like Christ, should first be sacrificial. And second, a husband's life should, love sorry, should reflect Christ's love in being unconditional. Unconditional love. You know, our human heart is quick to retort to that sacrificial type of love, but you don't know my wife. You don't know how mean she can be sometimes. You don't know how vindictive she is. She never has let me forget what I did. And no matter what I do, it's never enough. You know, I'm making sacrifices all the time. And does she ever notice them? No. Why do I need to love someone like her? Well, in your love for her, you may need to find an appropriate time to talk about those things. Yet whether she ever shows you respect or appreciation or forgiveness, God calls you to love her like he loves his bride unconditionally. Let's flip back three chapters. Because as I've said several times, these latter three chapters, four, five, and six, are all really built on what Paul said in the first part of the letter. If as we come to understand what's true about God and ourselves, that should lead to our lives. And let's look at at God's love for us and when he loved us. Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. And when you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So when we were like that, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You know, we, the objects of God's love, we were loved even when we were rebelling against God. Thus, husbands, your love for your wife should not be gauged by the love and respect your wife shows you first. If Christ loved us based on our love for him, he would have never loved us in the first place. And so we must love like that. I mean, just consider Jesus. He served and washed the feet of Judas, who was only going to go use those to betray him. He served and washed the feet of the disciples that he knew hours later would be used to run away from him. Thus, whether your wife is young or old, charming or bitter, healthy or sick, you should love her. And in fact, that's what we all vowed to do on our wedding day. That's impossible, though. I can't love someone who's so harsh, bitter, and mean. Well, you're right. You can't. And neither can I. So, at times, we confess our inability. God, I don't want to love this person right now. Everything in me wants to lash back at them for what they did to me. But flip back again to Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. What's the power that he's talking about? He's talking about the power that took Jesus in the grave and brought him to life. And in your heart, there might be a deadness of desire to love your wife. And so you need to pray Ephesians 3.20. God, you can do far more than I ask or think. I don't want to love this woman, but I know by your power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, you can give me the power to do just that. He can change you from only wanting to respond to love with love to respond even to harshness with love. So a husband's love should be sacrificial. A husband's love should be unconditional. And third, a husband's love should reflect Christ's sanctifying love. This is verses 26 and 27. Let me read them again from chapter 5. That he, Christ, might sanctify her, being the church's bride, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, just like a husband could never actually die to take away his wife's sins, so a husband's never actually going to make his wife holy. It's a metaphor. But the point here is that we're called as men to lead our wives, not just physically, sacrifice for them physically, but we're also to lead them spiritually. The husband must take the lead in joyfully bringing the family to the church. He should be quicker to lead in prayer, in discipline, and in a life of holiness. He should be the one who's able to say, follow me, not follow mom. Follow me as I follow Christ. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Thus, it's not loving to love... Sorry, it's not loving your wife to allow her lack of interest to keep you from church. 
Now this is probably preaching to the choir because you're here. But I bring this up because I know, and I'm sure some of you sadly know, situations where the wife cannot find any church she likes, so the husband just stays at home with the wife every Sunday. Now, of course, you need to work it out. You need to talk and discuss, and what's a church that we can both go to and joyfully serve and love and worship with? Yes, you should do that. But if she says there's none in town, then eventually you need to say, well, honey, I'm going, and if there's kids, we're going to this church. We'd love to have you join us. And if you want to reopen which one you and we can go to, great. But until then, we are going to worship God. Or as a spiritual leader of the home, you may need to say, look, as we work through our budget and as we give our first fruits to the Lord, there's not enough money to go out to eat anymore. There's not as much money to buy new clothes. And that might not make her and the children happy. But husbands, you need to lead and honoring God first. In other words, when we talked about in sacrificing for your wife, that should never be taken to mean that this allows her to have a selfish lifestyle. This is not about being walked over and she becoming a tyrant. That's not love. In love, sometimes you need to say, no, we're not going to do that because that's not spiritually healthy. Now, all of this is reminding us that God calls husbands to lead. When we looked a couple weeks ago, who did God confront first in the garden? Adam. But who is the one that Satan tempted? Eve. Well, why did God confront Adam first? Well, because Adam, even before sin entered the world, had a responsibility to lead the family, to guard and protect it physically and spiritually. So husbands, yes, desire your wife's happiness but never at the cost of holiness. So husbands, is your wife more holy today because of your marriage to her? Has your influence and leading brought about spiritual development? Is this issue even on your radar? And when we stand before God, he's not going to go, only one vacation a year, that wasn't a very good husband. He's not going to say, well... That's the size square foot house you provided for, and that's not very good. He's going to ask, did you lead her in holiness? Did you protect her? Did you serve her? Yes, if you can give her another vacation, by all means. And if you have enough, give the pastor another vacation. Just be generous, share the wealth. If you can get a bigger house, get a bigger house. But happiness should never come at the expense of holiness. God is going to ask, did you lead your families?" in holiness, in a life that honors Him? Have you sacrificed and loved as my Son sacrificed and loved the church? Let's to summarize the first section. God gave the headship to the husband for the benefit of the wife, not himself. Husbands, our call is not to make sure our wife submits. As we saw a couple weeks ago, a wife's submission is a joyful self-giving not a forced recognition. Our call is to lead by serving. Our leadership is not a privilege to strut around and demand, but a calling to serve and deny ourselves like Christ. You know, we mentioned a couple weeks ago the tragedy that many men twist these verses to cause women to and abuse women. Twisted that one really up. That men use these and twist these to abuse their wife. And that is a real problem. But as a culture, we always are swinging from one extreme 
to the other. And there's many a man who's saying, well, I don't want to be domineering. I don't want to be like that. And what they become is passive. They end up doing nothing. They become lazy. And there's a wonderful wide path between abuse and passivity in which you lead your family. You know, I guarantee that every godly woman wants a husband who takes the initiative and leads the home in spiritual growth and bringing up and discussing the hard issues and engaging the children in protecting and providing. And all of this stands in stark contrast to the derogatory dismissal of all this as patriarchal. You know, those false stereotypes say that God's calling is that a man's going to be obsessed with control and he wants to oppress women. Yet this is about giving oneself up and wanting to bless women, specifically bless our wife. Some of you may have heard of Liz Curtis Higgs. She's written several books and she came to faith in a rather dramatic and surprising way. She was a radio personality and by her own words living a fast and wild life and even the kind of shock radio host Howard Stern warned her, Liz, you've got to clean up your act. Well, Liz didn't clean up her act though. Rather, God brought a Christian couple into her life. She writes, they didn't treat me like a project. They treated me like a friend who needed to hear some seriously good news. And as their friendship developed, she eventually went to church with them. And the first Sunday they were there, the pastor read these verses. Wives, submit to your husbands. And she thought, yep, that's just what I expected at a joint like this. Get married, get pregnant, be a happy little obedient wife. However, she says, the pastor continued to read and got to the husbands being commanded to sacrifice for their wives as Christ did. And Liz then leaned over to her friend and said, if I ever met a man willing to die for me, I would marry him in a heartbeat. Lizzie, her friend, whispered, a man has already died for you. She then writes, I knew that this was what I'd been looking for all my life. This heavenly love, this gracious forgiveness. You see, the goal of the Christian husband is not about the joy of getting, but the joy of giving. Which leads to the second point, love your wife like yourself. Verses 28 through 30, love your wife like yourself. Verse 28 says, thus, or in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Now, it didn't say husbands. If you agree with the sentiment, you should love your own wife. Nor husband, if you feel burdened to do so, you should love your wife. I say that because I've known professing Christians who will look at something clear that scripture says and say, well, I just don't feel burdened to do that. Well, whether you feel burdened to do it or not, if God's word says it, you should do it. And you should pray that God would burden you to do what his word says. In this case, Paul quotes from Leviticus 19.18, which says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Jesus quoted when he was asked, What's the greatest commandment? He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this was a radical command to this culture in which it was written. Because in their culture, the husband was expected to provide food and shelter. But beyond that, there were no obligations. But here we see God's commands for husbands is not just to provide necessities of life, 
but to personally and sacrificially care for and love their own wives. Now we have a hard time hearing these verses, for there's an almost unchallenged assumption in our culture that you have to love yourself before you can love someone else. Just Google self-love and you'll find an overabundance of articles telling you that you have to love yourself first. Now, self-love is a phrase that you could define anyway. So we need to find a helpful definition, or at least a clear one. Jeffrey Borenstein, the president of the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation, says, Self-love means taking care of your own needs and not sacrifice your well-being to please others. Now, I can't speak to all definitions of self-love, but I can speak to that one. We're called to love as Jesus loved. And if Jesus chose to, in these words, care for his own needs and not sacrifice his well-being to please others, we would all still be dead in our sins. In fact, as I was reading various articles this week about the so-called benefits of self-love, I came across one in which the author states, Well, if you know how to love others, then you know how to love yourself. But that's the exact flip of what Ephesians just said. We know how to love ourselves. It's the very love we have for ourselves that we need to give for others. And, contrary to fact, we actually think we're pretty good people. Another interesting Google search is, everyone thinks they're above average. And you'll find lots of hits showing study after study in which people always place themselves in the top half of things. 65% of people think they're better than average. That math doesn't work out. We think we're a lot better than we really are. You know, the problem is people conflate self-esteem, self-confidence, and self-love. Yes, if you go into a meeting and the whole time you're thinking, I'm really going to bumble this presentation, then you probably are. If you walk up to the free throw, free throw line and you think, I'm never going to make this shot, then you probably won't. If you second guess every math problem, you're probably going to make more mistakes. But this is not talking about self-confidence. That's a whole other issue. Rather, it's talking about self-love. And some people even twist this and say, well, look, Jesus, here, Paul, they're commanding to love ourselves first. Well, it's not a command. It's just rather a statement of comparison. We do love ourselves. I mean, just think about it. You wake up. <coughs> Who do you think about first? Me. Not the pastor. You. My, me, you, you know, you get the point. You think about yourself. What do I want to do? Probably, if you're like me, i got to run to the bathroom. And then you got to go get something to eat and drink. And you think about you, you, you. And that's not necessarily wrong. God made us think about ourselves. It's when we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. You know, I've counseled a few couples. I've talked to many couples about their marriage. I've never had a couple come to me and say, Pastor... We need help. The other one always wants what I want. And I always want what they want. We can never let the other person be served. No, it's always the opposite. Because we know how to love ourselves. No one needs to love themselves first so that we can then go love others. Rather, just think about all the ways in which we love ourselves and then do that for your spouse. You know, the Bible's point is, look, all the thought, all the energy, all the emotion you come to increasing your joy, removing your sorrow, just apply that 
to others in your life. In this case, specifically, your wife. And it's this self-interest that leads Paul to write in verse 28, that the one who loves his own wife loves himself. Well, why does he say that? Well, it's because notice what he says at the end of verse 31. There he quotes Genesis 2.24 where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Your God's math is not that half a person plus half a person equals a whole person in marriage. Your God's math is one fulfilled person and one fulfilled person equal one new union. You don't need to be married to be fulfilled. You can have a fulfilling life as a single. And yet in a mystery, when the two become one, they are now one. God has given us this, our spouse to join with them and create one new unit. And so when we love our spouse, we're loving ourselves. Some of you may have heard of Brian Chapel. He has written a couple books, was a seminary president. And once when he was president of a seminary, he had some couples over and they were playing Uno. And one wife was especially good, but whenever she would get to two cards, she would never go to one. So finally they asked her, well, why aren't you going to Uno? The point of the game. And the husband said, well, she embarrassed me in public before, and so we agreed that to submit to my authority, she would never speak in public again unless I gave her permission. To which all the couples thought, that's not how you play Uno. <laughs> and then they talked to her about, and then that's not what the Bible means about submission. That's not what it means about loving your wife. And tragically, Chapel went on to say, not just a few weeks later, that man withdrew from the seminary because of ongoing issues in his life. And as he was reflecting, he was saying, how much more would this man have loved himself if he would have loved his wife? By stifling her, he was hurting himself. And that's what Paul is calling us to. Look, as you love and cherish and nourish your wife, you're really benefiting yourself. So love your, your wife like Christ and love your wife like yourself. That's why he goes on in verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. George Knight writes, with these two verbs, nourish and cherish, Paul uses the emotionally evocative language of nurturing care to communicate what it means to love one's wife. The word cherish literally means to keep warm, and thus figuratively to share, cherish and to comfort. It's interesting that same word cherish is used in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7-8, which says, We prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares, same word as cherish, for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. So in like manner, the husband should tenderly care and impart his own life as his wife has become dear to him. Thus a husband's love is to be more than putting money in the bank and a roof over their heads. There should be a tenderness expressed in actions, in emotions, in lifestyle. You can just consider how much time and energy men put into their hobby or favorite sport. You know, some men love their vehicle. And they'll spend a whole Saturday vacuuming, waxing, polishing, getting sure it's just right. 
other men know every single player on the sports team. They're on the couch every time the game's on. They're there for everything. A man's love for his car or team should never come close to the love he has for his wife. She's not just a cook, child watcher, house cleaner, and partner for sex. She should be adored, loved, and honored just as God adores his bride, the church. I mean, consider the verse we read earlier, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So husbands, may you love your lives, love your wives with such love. Well, we need to bring this to a close, but as you know, we're just scratching the surface on marriages. Perhaps tragically, your marriage has become civil but cold. Or even worse, it's uncivil and each day is a new war of words and arguments. No one here suspects your, your marriage has become like this because you always put on a good show in public. But please know we're here to help. Every marriage has problems and sometimes relationships get to a point where you can't even have a conversation without it blowing up and so you need someone to come alongside you and help you so please please don't wait till it's too late i've known many a christian couple who says after their divorce well we didn't want anyone to know what was going on we'd be too embarrassed well it's more embarrassing years later when you've allowed it to fester and grow when it tragically ends, than if you had had the humility to say, we need help. So thus, we've looked at God's calling in marriage for a wife, and now for a husband. It's not easy. It will be costly, but if done right, it will reflect the difficult and costly love of Christ for the church, and the church's responsive love for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we want to reflect you. And yet then our pride, our arrogance, our self-love gets in the way. And we want to be respected. We want to be honored. So Lord, would each of us, whether married or single, child or parent, would we desire to be more like you? Would you give us that power that Ephesians 3.20 talks about? Resurrection power to overcome our sinful desires and have new life. Life that wants to love those who don't love us. Lord, would we in our marriages in this church be a clear picture of the gospel to those around us? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.